0: Um, even more niche courses like 13 Week Cash Flow, Venture Capital Course, Real Estate Modeling—you name it. Go ahead and check them out at WallStreetOasis.com/courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com WSO. Hello, everyone. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today, I'm speaking with Jeff Clavier from Uncork Capital. Jeff's been a venture investor for more than 20 years. He's pretty much seen it all when it comes to startups, investing in over 200 of them. We'll dive into how he got into venture capital and how he's found success. Also a little about wine collecting and spoiler alert, the name Uncork Ventures has nothing to do with Jeff's passion for wine. If you wanna get a job on Wall Street or in venture capital or anywhere, Your resume better be perfect. Let the pros here at Wall Street Oasis make sure that it is as part of their resume review service. All of the reviewers, they work in the industry at top firms, so check it out and say podcast is where you heard about it. I never have any idea what I'm going to say for this spot on the podcast. I think about it during the week. I say to my wife, what should I talk about? It's like a joke between us now because I ask every week and she never says anything. And then right when I wake up on Saturday or Sunday morning, I wake up really early, I'll sit down at my desk and something will just come to me. I don't know if I find the most interesting things to talk about every week, but I'm doing my best. So while I'll usually talk about something that happened in the earlier week, right now my life is pretty singularly focused on pay club. So that's what I'm talking about most but if you have something you want to know or a question you want to ask, just send me an email, alex at wallstreetoasis.com. So yesterday, Shirayar sent me an email asking if I have any book recommendations. Everything I'm reading now is focused on startups, on moving fast, on launching quickly, on being agile, on marketing techniques. Interesting stuff, but nothing that's really life-changing. My favorite book is called The Alchemist. That one is life-changing. You can read it in a weekend. It's like 150 pages. The main point of it is really my favorite theme. I talk about it in the podcast, I talk about it in life. It's that the universe has a way of working things out for you. That you just need to enjoy your journey and trust that you're on the right path. I think it's the hardest thing for me to do, which is probably why I like the book so much because it's reassuring. As I've talked about before, comparing yourselves to others is the worst thing you can do. We all have different paths, and they're long. We're going to live till we're at least 100. I'm going to live till I'm 200. So yeah, check out the book. Let it give you confidence that you're doing okay, that whether you get that job that you want or not, like your life is still going to work out. So let me know what you think. Send me an email. Tweet me. Thanks. Hey, Jeff. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Alex.
0: Yeah, so you've been a venture capitalist for more than 20 years. Your fund now is called Uncork Ventures, or Uncork Capital, sorry. Um, I take it you're a big wine lover. That's the Uncork piece, but uh, we can get into the wine maybe, maybe later in the podcast. I'd love to hear about how you got your start, how you became a venture capitalist.
1: Sure. And actually, funny enough, Uncork was originally not related to my passion for wine. Uh, it's really sort of uncorking the potential of startups and entrepreneurs uh, that we work with. And so a, a namer who didn't know about uh, me and my, and my interest in wine who suggested Uncork. So um, so the the genesis of me becoming a VC was actually really random Um uh, I was an entrepreneur, did a startup in the financial services market uh, in France. Um, I was a um, a CTO, so I really sort of have a uh, technical background. And we ended up being acquired by uh, Reuters uh, in, uh, in 1993. I stayed for a while. And in 2000, I finally sort of decided it was time for me to go do something else. And it just so happens that... The venture arm of Reuters um, wanted to have a strong operator join the team uh, because, you know, after the uh, first Internet bubble burst, they wanted someone with my skill set on the team. And so I moved to Palo Alto with my family uh, in August of 2000, became a VC, uh, which was probably one of the worst uh, times Possible to become a VC, to be honest. Uh, But that was sort of interesting, uh, certainly to see how uh, bad uh, sort of the market had turned and and how screwed up companies uh, could be after raising way too much money ahead of their product market fit. And so I did that for four years. And then uh, in 2004, I saw the opportunity to start uh, investing as an Android investor into Web 2.0. And eventually, in 2007, raised one of the very first micro VC funds in history. And, you know, that's what I've been doing since.
0: Right. On your Twitter, I think it was, you said you are one of the OG micro VC firms. You were doing it before it was cool.
1: Yeah. The the challenge with the... um, Twitter bio is that they give you 160 characters, and so I had to sort of figure out how I called what I was doing. And I think OG describes um, you know what I've been what I've been doing because uh, I was one of the first um, super angels investing in Web 2.0, then raised one of the first micro VC funds, and have really I think supported uh, the um, the lift off of that market by you know advising or mentoring a lot of my peers. And so OG is in you know pretty fair.
0: I agree. I love the term. So Jeff, let's get into how micro-investing works, right? So you say you're you're the first check into one of these companies, but they've, they've probably raised a little bit of money from friends and family. They've be, probably started or maybe, you know, got along, along the way of building a product. Um, and then they find you and, and how do you get involved?
1: Yes. I think it's a good, uh, sort of characterization of what we do. I think, uh, Back in 2004, when there was really nothing, I was the first check or one of the first checks uh, that helped the company sort of get off the ground and uh, build their product. Now we're the first launch check, uh, so we come in, you know, as part of an institutional round that will give two, three million dollars uh, to a company which is you know, a few founders, a couple of engineers, uh, a product that is either about to launch or already uh, in market. So we can get a little bit of additional data in terms of, you know, how do you market the product? How do you sell the product? Is there, you know, uh, a few early customers, you know, out there that we can talk to? And so we'll really sort of get the company from from launch to the first level of scale that will allow them to raise a, um, a series A.
0: Right. So, so these companies sometimes have found product market fit or most of the time not.
1: Oh, no, I would say it's, it's really sort of, they, they have a, um, uh, a very early version of their product, um, out there. So, you know, uh, really sort of an MVP, uh, and they, figure out, uh, they're in the process of figuring out uh, a bit of a marketing strategy to um, get the product in front of their um, uh, their target customers. So, you know, depending on the this, on this space, because we invest in a wide variety of, of sectors, um, some will be, you know, very early. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, connected hardware companies, when we invest in them, we just see a, a rough prototype. I call that the ugly prototype. That demonstrates that you know either the product or the science underpinning the product actually work, um, and you know if we invest in a SaaS company, it's not un- unusual that we see um, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in AR, in uh, uh, annual recurring revenue uh, coming in the company before we invest, because typically for those uh, you're able, to, you should be able to achieve. Uh, minimum sort of market traction on on very little uh, sort of raised, and so you know sometimes we're the first large money in. Sometimes the company has raised a half a million or a million already in in what is called now pre seed financing. But we really sort of take them from very early scale to you know uh, the traction that they need to raise a call it ten ish million dollar Series A.
0: Got it. Okay. That makes sense. And so you went from being the CTO of this fintech fund to moving over to the investing side. And you said Reuters wanted a strong operator. You know, why were you able to make that transition? Like what was it that Reuters saw in you that said you were a good operator? I think you'd be a good investor.
1: That's a great question. And to be very candid, I don't, I don't know that they know. I think, um, I was I was really good. I was at what I was doing. Um, the managing partner of the fund, John Taysom, um who uh, has been, you know, my mentor in VC, because he taught me everything. You know, I um, I knew as a uh, uh, more traditionally sort of trained venture capitalist um, thought that the mix of um, curiosity, innovation, and you know operating uh sort of skills that i had would make me at least decent um and he gave me a shot and i think um you know i can i can never thank him enough to uh, make that crazy bet uh on me back in 2000 and you know uh without that i'm not sure i would be actually i'm pretty sure i wouldn't be here
0: right yeah i mean you can look back on a career like, on a career like yours. And and usually there is some type of inflection point or jumping off place where it's like, I did this and then some kind of event happened, something interesting changed. And then from there, you know, everything kind of took a different trajectory. So do you think that was the moment for you where it kind of, you know, changed the way that, that your career, uh, structured?
1: You know, it's, um, it's kind of interesting goes, um, Couple of times, DPD really sort of uh, played uh, in my favor. The first time was uh, back in, let's see, uh, nineteen eighty-eight, when I was in, um, you know, in uh, in computer class, and I was sort of doing a project, and it was late at night on a Saturday or whatever, and um, our TA shows up and. I was with one of my buddies doing some Unix thing, and he says, "Hey, uh, nerds, uh, I need two interns for a buddy of mine who uh, is working for a um, an equity broker in Paris, um, and the you know Unix admins. Would you guys be interested?" And we're like, uh, "Yeah, sure, maybe." And they're like, "You know, the good news is that it's in finance, and so it pays well." and you know, I was dirt poor, so so was my buddy. Um, and so we went and spent the summer interning for that um, that firm. And that's where I sort of got to understand the specifics of market finance, uh, real-time data, uh, data distributions, and so forth. And that led me to uh, join that super estate startup that we built, uh, uh, and then, and then, uh, sold to Reuters and without me being at that time in that, you know, sort of, uh, kind of computer room, um, I may not have done, you know, that thing. And then just by accident, this notion that, um, there was an opportunity in, um, in Palo Alto. And I really wanted to move to, um, uh, to San Francisco slash Palo Alto, uh, back in 2000. And I just decided to just jump in without thinking about, you know, failure. And I think that's something maybe that defines a little bit what I've done, which is, you know, um, well, I didn't have anything to lose when I was, um, when I was a student, but certainly joining a startup back in, you know, 80, 88, 89 uh, was not something very common in France. Um, I remember sort of my father's reaction when I said that I was joining a startup. Um, he said, I don't understand, you've always had good grades. And that, that was sort of typical at the time where you would only join a startup um, or you would be an entrepreneur if you wouldn't find someone to give you a job. And so, you know, same thing, uh, jumping into sort of the unknown um, of what that meant to become a VC in a different country was pretty risky, especially given that we moved, you know, sort of my young family uh, with me at the time, but I just had to do it. And likewise, when I left the fund uh, to start Uncork, uh, that was even riskier and crazier, but I just had to do it
0: yeah okay, so you know there's obviously a great amount of luck associated with ha- with having those opportunities, but there's also you know uh, some type of skill or recognition that you say that oh these are good opportunities for me i'm going to jump at them and each time you did it you know you had to put kind of um, uncertainty behind opportunity like you had to just say i'm going to, I'm gonna go do this and, and see what happens and kind of not be afraid to to fail you know how at each one of those kind of inflection points, you know, what was your, what was your mindset? How did, how'd you think about those at those points?
1: Well, I think it's, you know, it's the same thing as, um, entrepreneurs sort of face in the decision before they actually sort of decide that they're going to do something, um, radically different, radically crazy, um, you know, start, uh, building, you know, the plane as they try and fly it. Um, which is which is a a good sort of imagery. Um, I think at at some point there's this okay. Well, uh, let's either you just jump in because you have to do it and you have this passion and you you know nothing will sort of talk you out of it, or you just look at the risk and the potential downside and you know y- if you're optimistic and you have to be as an entrepreneur. Uh, a, you think that um, things may or will work out, and you know if if they don't, then that's really what I appreciate in um, in in the US or in Silicon Valley is that like people won't um, stop talking to you because you failed because you had a crazy vision or uh, uh, some some view of the world that just didn't pan out, and you know. People sort of still engage with you and give you access to uh, jobs and friendship and so on and so forth. As long as you've been, uh, you know, ethical and give it a good go and tried your hardest, people will respect that. And so I think the, the downside does exist, but, you know, there's no shame in failure and, you know, we fail every day. We, we have an embarrassing number of failures, you know, in our portfolio, uh, things that we invested in, which blew up spectacularly and things we passed on and became, you know, some of the most successful sort of companies around. And you have to live with that. And that's OK, you know. So I think once you've accepted the, the fact that failure is just not such a big deal, then you free yourself from actually sort of taking risk and doing crazy stuff.
0: Yeah. And I like that outlook. I mean, that's kind of the Silicon Valley mentality is that just apply yourself, fail, fail quickly and, and learn from those failures. So Jeff, is it, is it different in Paris or, or in, in Europe more broadly where failure isn't viewed quite as positively?
1: It was very different, I would say, back in my days. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've turned 50, so now I can't really say that. I'm definitely I'm so on the older side now. Um, but uh, 25 years ago... Uh, it wasn't as easy and, and accepted as it is now. There, was, there were true, you know, sort of uh, social consequences and, and issues of recognition and, you know, sort of carrying that, that, that failure um, with you on your resume, uh, which could definitely make you uh, not really em- unemployable, but uh, create challenges for you to find another job. Um, I think that now, thank God things have definitely normalized and um, it's definitely uh, way more accepted uh, in the ecosystem to be an entrepreneur, to want to try and build you know crazy things. And uh, especially now with President uh, Macron, uh, it's celebrated and he's trying his hardest to have France uh, be a nation of entrepreneurs. And so um, now my hope is that failure is as widely accepted as it is here where, you know, as long as, like I said, as, as long as you try hard and, you know, you're ethical and you you go for it and it doesn't work, it's fine.
0: Right. So Jeff, I really like that. St- I really like your story. Um, that was, that's fun to hear. Let's Let's get into... Uh, you know what, Uncork does and, and how the process of investing in one of these early stage businesses works. So, I read that you get contacted by over 3,000 startups per year and you invest in 15. That's a cr- those are crazy numbers. What differentiates those 15 from the other 2,985?
1: So um, you have to think of it as um, stages of a um, sales pipeline, right? So we'll see, give or take, you know, 3,000 companies a year. Uh, We'll outright pass on 2,500 of them. And the reason why could be, well, you know, we we invest at seed stage. Some people sort of send us opportunities for later stage or earlier stage companies. Right, Uh, we invest in Silicon Valley, New York, Boston, and a little bit in Canada. And so, if people sort of send us opportunity in in India or Florida or South Carolina, it won't be for us. Um, We're very broad in terms of sectors. So, SaaS, B two B enterprise, connected hardware, uh, marketplaces, a little bit of consumer, but all monetized. And then, you know, the broad category of frontier tech. So, we invest in a lot of things. But, you know, there are things we don't do. Uh, we don't do much of e-commerce. We don't do much of travel. We don't do much of, you know, a bunch of things. So, it's pretty easy for us to filter a lot of companies and know within, you know, 30 seconds of uh, reading the description or the email, it won't be for us. Then, you know, we're going to take maybe five 600 meetings um, a year. Uh, And this three of us uh, have two partners. So, you know, we're going to meet a bunch of entrepreneurs and, you know, only, only sort of call it 50 to hundred will actually be invited for a second meeting where we say, Oh, this was actually interesting. Let's just go and spend more time. You guys. So the team or another partner sort of meet uh, that, um, that company, that team as well. Then, um, we're going to have maybe 30, 40 companies getting into the diligence. So we actually, they passed the first, uh, you know, sort of sniff test. They are interesting. They're in a market that we think can yield uh, a massive company. The product we think is interesting and differentiated. Uh, we like the founders. We think that there is a good founder market fit. There is, you know, sort of a, uh, a whole slew of things that we think, you know, make this, this, um, uh company worth spending more time in. And then we start digging in, you know, talk to experts in that space to validate the market opportunity and the product approach. Uh, we spend more time with the founders, pepper them with a bunch of questions related to the product, the technology, the hiring plan, you know, everything. Uh, we we call uh, some of their uh, former colleagues and friends to get character references. We spend time uh, talking to their customers if they have some And we basically sort of try and answer as many questions as uh, we can around, is this one of the handful of of companies that should actually get our investment? And, you know, from that list of 30 to 40 that get into the diligence, um, we end up making, you know, maybe 17 or 18 offers per uh, year to invest, and then two or three times, It doesn't work for different reasons. Uh, You know, either uh, they don't like, you know, our terms, we can't get there on price, we can't get there on, you know, so uh, we can't get there. And then, you know, 15 times, uh, we actually close an investment um, and we start working very, very hard with the team to get them on that on that treadmill of sorts that, you know, gets them to build the product further, launch it, uh, build the organization, figure out the good market strategy and start, you know, generating the milestones and or traction that will get them, uh, series a, uh, 12 to 18 months later.
0: Right. Okay. That makes great sense. And, and Jeff, usually the last question is advice. We'll get to that in a second. Most of the time, we only talk about career stuff and how you got to where you are. But you know, I, I'm interested in, in the wine uh, collection and, and uh, enthusiasm that you have. You know, how does someone get involved in wine collecting like like you do?
1: You know, it's um. So I was born in the Loire Valley in Tours, uh, and so I've been surrounded uh, by people who are um, wine connoisseurs, um, you know, since since almost my birth. Um, and so that, that culture of wine uh, is something that I just got from um, from my dad and, um, and, and his friends. Um, and I think, you know, wine can be a big deal. It shouldn't be made a big deal. Because at the end of the day, what matters is that you figure out what style or what kind of wines that you really sort of enjoy. And those are the ones that you should really sort of... Um, Start uh, collecting, and the collection could be and handful of bottles. Could be you know a few dozens or a few hundreds or more. Um, but it's really about understanding what makes you happy. And the good news with wine is you actually don't have to spend a ton of money to um, to really get uh, awesome bottles and things that really sort of uh, make you enjoy a moment that you share with friends. And you know. Uh, People always ask me, so what does it take? And essentially, it takes a lot of drinking or tasting to figure (laughs) out what you enjoy. Um, Actually, I happen to be very eclectic uh, for Frenchmen. So um, I have pretty much, you know, everything in terms of old world, new world, French, Italian, Spanish... Uh, Chile and Argentina. Obviously I'm, I'm, I'm still learning about uh, California and, and so wines in general, but I like the diversity because I want to be able to just have something different and I never know what I'm going to open when I get in the cellar.
0: All right. Well, that was fun to hear. So this is it. Last question. You're early in your career. You have a son or daughter. They're, in college trying to figure out what's right for them in life, you know, they, they want to work hard and they want to put themselves like you did in the place where there's going to be the most amount of opportunity. Uh, what do you tell someone like that? Uh, and, you know, trying to think about how they're going to lay out their, their career. Uh,
1: two, uh, it's a two-parter and you know, I have, I have a 21, actually my son is, is twenty one today. Um, and my daughter is 17 and a half. And so, you know, the two-parter is one, don't stress about, you know, the future and, and you know, if you don't know yet what's going to make you click and, and what will make you sort of happy, it's okay. Just go for, you know, uh, sort of an education which gives you a bunch of options and you will figure it out because, you know what, Serendipity actually works. Um, so that's the, let's just not stress and, and, you know, put too much thinking into it. Uh, things will work out. And then the second is really sort of think about, like, what makes you passionate and what you will spend, you know, the next 10 years uh, sort of doing in terms of type of jobs, roles, you know, sectors and so forth. Because um, I think personal development and and, and happiness is is you know, grossly underrated (laughs) and people sort of need to think about that Uh, and you know, I've been very lucky to always sort of um, enjoy what I was doing you know, when I was running launch development teams or now um, I'm I'm lucky to have the best job in the world, which is early stage investor because we see uh, the future through the eyes of entrepreneurs. And you know, every now and then we say yes, we're going to jump in, and we actually help them build that vision. And you know what? Every now and then it works, and then you really have sort of the satisfaction of of sitting back and you know seeing how an entrepreneur that you've worked with for five or ten years has developed and and executed and Reached that vision that they had, and that's a, that's a great moment.
0: Yeah, that is, that is a cool moment, and uh, happy birthday to your son! Do you have a twenty-one-year-old bottle of wine to drink tonight?
1: Yes, actually, absolutely. We we're, we're gonna, um, and he's allowed to um, share it with uh, with us, so it's awesome. So I uh, I, I sourced a, a great bottle of uh, nineteen ninety-seven Cabernet Sauvignon from um, uh, from Napa.
0: <laughs> well, that's so cool. And uh, Jeff, this was a lot of fun talking with you. Thanks so much for, uh, for doing it, for your story and the advice and the wine tidbits. It was, this was great.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Alex.
0: Okay. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening today. Every set of ears really makes a difference. So please tell your friends about this podcast and let me know what you think. Leave me a review on iTunes Or send me an email, alex at wallstreetoasis.com. Thank you.